For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Welcome to another excursion into podcast excellence. I'm John Cassinet, and I'll be hosting you today on unveilingjesuschrist.com. Today we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation made plain. Now, for those who are watching on video, you'll notice I have a slightly different attire this morning, which I'll describe for those who might be listening on an audio podcast. I'm wearing a white smock and uh, a hairnet, of all things. Um, It's really not a good look for me, so if you're uh, only uh, tuning in by audio podcast, uh, it's your lucky day because you don't have to actually look at me. Uh, but uh, I'm wearing this because about a week or so ago, uh, this was the attire I was uh, <clears throat> required to wear at the De- Deseret Meat Processing Facility in Spanish Fork, Utah. I went and took an assignment where uh, we were uh, able to process and package about 4,000 pounds of hamburger in about a two-hour shift. Uh, it's a pretty amazing facility, really, um, The since it's the only facility in the church they send their hamburger throughout the United States and, and other meat products as well, but we happened to be doing a hamburger on the day that I was there, but their assignment for this year was uh, to process and package 48,000 pounds of hamburger, and uh, so they had quite a process to do that. When I walked into the room where we were packaging the hamburger, they had these uh, huge, uh, I'll just call them carts. They were like mining carts on wheels, those old vintage carts that you can kind of imagine in the uh, coming out of the mining shaft with uh, loads of ore. But these particular mining carts on wheels had about 500 pounds of hamburger in each of them. And the process began with uh, lifting those carts up with a uh, heavy machine, obviously, a crane, and uh, pouring the hamburger into a big stainless steel funnel that would feed into the packaging machine. And uh, that machine forced the hamburger through an inch and a half stainless steel tube at a very high rate. And as it was coming through, Um, a plastic wrapper would uh, catch the meat and place metal clips on the two ends of the package and so it looked a little bit like a sausage it's about eight inches long about an inch and a half and each of them um, had a one pound uh, amount of hamburger in them so because these things were coming through about one every second it took about six of us to keep up with the machine so there's a guy making boxes there were uh, two people who um, were catching the hamburger almost literally um, as it would come out of this machine and and put them into the boxes, 28 in each box. Then uh, a guy would be taping the box closed. My job, once the box had been created, was the labeler. And uh, I know it sounds like a pretty simple job, but it's more complicated than it sounds, okay? Um, And after I labeled the box, it was weighed and everything, and I I created a label. 
that I would then put on and uh, I'd hand it off to the guy that was uh, putting the uh, boxes on uh, the uh, pallets. So it was uh, interesting because the uh, the labels had a lot of information <clears throat> on them about the specific weight of each box. <clears throat> I was pretty impressed that uh, it was very, very precise because each box was supposed to weigh 28 pounds and, you know, it, it was pretty close. I mean, it had a standard deviation of maybe a quarter of a pound on each side, but uh, sometimes those boxes would come through and they were dead on accurate, 28.00 pounds. And so that the machine was very, very accurate and the labels would also give the date, they'd give the time. I had to give a box number and then the pallet number and I, <laughs> I kind of started looking for it and said geez I wonder if they got the name of the cow on there this is old Bessie coming through <laughs> but <clears throat> you'll be happy to hear that none of the cows were named at least uh, not that I know of because they didn't show up on the uh, label and you know I, I make fun of this there might be some of you who might get a little bit queasy oh please don't say that somebody named my hamburger um, but uh, I grew up on a ranch um, in Saratoga Wyoming Wyoming where we did our own butchering and uh, we had uh, you know during the summers when we had a big hay crew we had uh, basically mutton chops uh, almost every morning my grandfather would get up very early in the morning and uh, cut up the uh, the mutton that we'd butchered uh, at some point and uh, my grandmother would get up a little bit later and she'd start cooking up mutton chops and so we'd have eggs and mutton chops and pancakes for uh, breakfast and so uh, that's uh, was our standard fare um, <clears throat> I'm going to deviate here <laughs> you know I warned you in my first podcast that I'm a storyteller and I think of these things and you know I'm sure everybody in the world wants to hear my stories and so I have to tell you a story about uh, my grandfather he was quite a character but uh, because we had a lot of sheep he would drive a Cadillac. That was his standard car he, for years and years, and you have to get a new one about every year because he'd <laughs> he'd take his sheep out, he'd take his uh, car out on the range to uh, uh, deal with the sheep, and so he'd be riding the range in his Cadillac, going over sagebrush and stuff like that. And uh, I, I remember one time the, the car broke down, and the later report was that he'd broken the frame driving over sagebrush or who knows what. But uh, <clears throat> it was not unusual for my grandfather to come home from one of his uh, rides on the range in his Cadillac, and he'd have a bunch of sheep in the car with him, and uh, so they. <laughs> <laughs> they'd be in the trunk, uh, they'd be in the back seat, uh, you know, lambs, if, if the, the sheep came with lambs, they would have uh, the lambs riding up a shotgun up in the front with them. And uh, I remember one time it was <clears throat> either an uncle or an aunt uh, uh, that said, Daddy, you've got to quit bringing sheep home in the car. It, it ruins the car. And his response was, well, they paid for it. Why can't they ride in it? <laughs> so that that story doesn't have a real connection to the uh, the message I'm trying to tell you today. But uh, at any rate, I thought it's just kind of funny. And uh, so we'll move on. So getting back to the machine and the meatpacking in um, Spanish Fork, Utah, uh, I'm always impressed with the uh, engineering of machines like this and, and I kind of like to investigate and see what, what makes them tick and how they operate because essentially you had this thing shooting out hamburger 
one pound at a second, fully packaged, um, and uh, I kind of wanted to see what made it work. But unfortunately, I was the labeler, and so I had to make sure the labels got on the boxes. And uh, oh, by the way, if anyone tells you that productivity slipped on that day, it wasn't me, okay? Um, and uh, I had to put the label on and because it only took me you know about 10 seconds to get a label on each box and to pass it off there was about another 15 to 20 seconds when you know I'm just kind of waiting for the next box to come along but it wasn't enough time for me to be able to just stop and leave my post and, and go see how does this thing really work um, but uh, essentially because of the need for me to make sure I was doing my thing I never did get a really good look at it, and, and it's a little bit like uh, studying scriptures and understanding scriptures, particularly a, a book of scripture as uh, complicated as the book of Revelation. And essentially the message is, is we have to make time if we want to understand it. And I know that it seems like life is throwing hamburger at you one tube a second. <laughs> You, you don't have time for anything else. Um, but the reality of it is, life doesn't throw hamburger at you 24-7, 365. And uh, you got to make time for uh, spiritual things. And you have to ask yourself, uh, what, are, what are our priorities? And <clears throat> you have to really want it if you're going to do it, uh, which is uh, an old scene in uh, Groundhog Day, which is a classic, of course, with... Uh, Bill Murray, uh, who's reliving the same day over and over again in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. It's Groundhog Day, and uh, he spends his time, these repeat days, uh, learning how to flick cards into a hat. <laughs> so he's, he's really good at it, and one day, uh, on one of these days, uh, Rita's there with him, and she's trying to flick the cards into the hat and just can't do it, and uh, Bill Murray's uh, telling her, Rita, you got to want it. Um, and uh, that's a little bit about uh, what it's like with uh, reading and understanding the book of Revelation is you really got to want it if you're going to try and understand what the meaning is behind all the apocalyptic images uh, in the book of Revelation. Essentially, you can't be a casual consumer of this book, but the rewards are very great. And so that's kind of my introduction and uh, hopefully my I've inspired you to uh, set aside the, the hamburger that gets thrown at you every day and to spend more time uh, reading and studying, pondering and understanding the book of Revelation because the blessings will come to you as you do it. Now, having kind of finished with my little bit of an introduction here, <clears throat> I'm going to take off this hair nut because it, it kind of looks ridiculous and uh, I don't want it to be... <laughs> distracting and so now you get to look at me with my hair all messed up uh, having taken off my uh, hairnet but now we're, we're going to move into a discussion about the uh, the book of Revelation which is called the Apocalypse of John this is a genre of uh, Hebrew literature that is uh, prophetic meaning it's something that is foretelling the future it's also highly symbolic the ancient Greek word of apocalypt or apocalypsis uh, is actually broken down into two separate words. The first part of the word apo or apo <clears throat> is a preparation that means to separate. 
The second part of the word is calypto. Now that's a verb which means to cover, conceal, or hide. So if you put the two words together, one meaning to separate, the second meaning to cover, conceal, or hide, <clears throat> then what you have is a separation from that which covers, conceals, or hides. That's what you get when you put apo together with calypto to come up with apocalypse. Now, you may have <clears throat> seen the adventures of Jacques Cousteau when you were growing up. I know that I did. And uh, for those of the younger generation, you won't know who this individual is, but he was a marine biologist and he had a TV program where he would uh, go out on his boat called the Calypso and uh, take us beneath the surface of the waters to uh, discover all kinds of uh, really cool stuff. Um, so his, bo his boat, the Calypso, is a very appropriate name for what he was doing because if you're on the surface, everything is kind of hidden. But the Calypso, which comes from Calypto, the Greek word, which means to cover, conceal, or hide, is when you leave the boat Calypso and go down under the water, everything becomes revealed and becomes clear. And so um, that was the name of his boat. It's actually, the, the, the name is from Homer's Odyssey. There was a nymph by the name of uh, Calypso who lived on the island of Ogygia, as you recall reading your uh, ninth grade. <laughs> reading requirement uh, of the Odyssey, which I did. I don't know if they still read it today, but uh, I had to read that book in ninth grade. It drove me crazy. Uh, I couldn't keep track of everybody. But at any rate, the, um, the, the nymph um, on uh, the island of Ogygia, o Calypso, she's, she's the one who detained our hero Odysseus for seven years, which has some implications, uh, the number seven. We're going to talk about that in another week or so. And... Uh, at any rate, the other thing that's kind of interesting, uh, if you're going to appear on Jeopardy and it happens to be the last Jeopardy question, you're going to want to know that uh, Homer's uh, residence was in Smyrna, which was one of the seven cities uh, that John sent a letter to when he wrote the book of Revelation. And so uh, I'm just trying to be helpful when you appear on uh, Jeopardy. Make sure you have all the answers about uh, the uh, book of Revelation and uh, Homer. <clears throat> In Smyrna, coincidentally, just another little factoid, uh, they also held the uh, Olympics there in that city as well. So we need to move on. So in English, of course, the uh, apocalypse means to reveal, and that's why we call it the revelation. That is the making known of a divine truth through a heavenly communication. So you, it involves this uh, parting of the veil, setting aside and uh, so that uh, what is behind the veil then becomes revealed. And that's uh, why this podcast is called unveiling Jesus Christ because he's the central figure in the book of Revelation and that which is revealed. And uh, the prophetic uh, revelation is not isolated to uh, the book of Revelation in terms of its apocalyptic nature. Uh, Nephi has an apocalypse in the book of in the first book of Nephi and then you'll also find it in other books like Dan, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, all of these uh, are apocalyptic. They have fantastic symbolism to express uh, things about the future. Now, don't confuse the word apocalypse with apocrypha. 
Uh, Apocrypha is a form of scripture that uh, is kind of a second-tier scripture, if you will. It doesn't rise to the level of having uh, met the criteria to be canonized in the Bible, although the, uh, the Catholic Bible does include the Apocrypha as part of its canon. But there are books like First and Second Enoch, Second Esdras or Ezra, um, the third and fourth books of Maccabee, um, <clears throat> all of which have apocalyptic images in the books, and they also happen to be apocryphal books. Um, and so uh, we have the revelation that uh, reveals things about the future, but the reality of it is most people think that uh, the book is anything but revealing <laughs> They think it's is really hard to understand, and uh, you first approach the book, and your reaction is, I, I just can't take it, and they don't even know where to start, which reminds me of a little uh, story from the life of my son Joshua. Now, he was kind of a character, uh, mischievous, I guess is probably the best word to describe him as he was going through school. And uh, it was not unusual for uh, Jan to get a call that Josh was down at the principal's office for one reason or another. So uh, the good news is he never got so bad that he got expelled. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, so one day we get the call that Josh is down at the principal's office and Jan calls me and tells me Josh is at the principal's office, blah, blah, blah. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I'd had it, you know, I was going to lay into him and... Uh, when he got home and his mother confronted him about his latest escapades, uh, Josh says, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything today. I literally, I walked into class and the teacher just says, I can't take you today. <laughs> Go to the principal's office. And so away he went. And uh, I thought that was just hilarious. And, and, you know, I can actually see it in my mind's eye. I could see it actually happening. And so uh, he was off the hook with his parents. Uh, but, you know, that's sometimes the, the reaction that people have to difficult scriptures, particularly the book of Revelation. You, you present it to them and they just say, I just can't take it today. <laughs> <laughs> so the book of Revelation gets sent to the principal's office. But uh, the reality of it is the book of Revelation was meant to be understood. Um, we know this because if you look in the uh, first chapter in the book of Revelation, I'm going to go to uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and it says this, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And uh, so this is telling us several things. You, you have to read it. You have to hear the words. In other words, hearing means hearkening because if it just goes in one ear and out the other, you're not really hearing. So hearing is hearkening. And uh, you also have to keep the sayings. You have to be obedient to the things which are written therein. And so I also like the phrase that uh, the time is at hand. I Personally, I think that was written for our day um, and the time for reading, hearing, and understanding. This is the great day of the book of Revelation, these latter days as we're going swiftly into the second coming. Um, this is the time when you have to really read, hear, and understand. And so the uh, admonition is not limited to the uh, third verse in chapter 1, which chapter 1 coincidentally is called the prologue 
of the book of Revelation, and the last chapter in the book of Revelation is known as the epilogue. And so in the epilogue, you also have a similar verse that repeats the admonition, and this is what it says in verse 7. It says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Again, a similar, this is the day um, I come quickly, speaking to us in the latter days. And uh, the admonition, again, is you need to understand the prophecies of these this book, which is, makes it a little bit, it feels a little bit like a catch-22, if you remember that old movie about the World War II and the pilots who were flying missions in a B-25 bombing squadron. Uh, you, 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 you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't is the kind of the meaning of catch-22. And the problem with us and the catch-22 about the book of Revelation is... I'm supposed to read it, hearken, and if I do, uh, then I get the blessings, but it's so difficult to understand, it seems like the blessings are impossible to achieve. And uh, it can be a little bit frustrating. Uh, Northrop Fry said in, uh, <clears throat> in his book in 1988, he said, the revelation either finds a man mad or leaves him that way. <laughs> You know, and I think about that, and I say, geez, I kind of resemble that remark because I've been studying the book of Revelation for 14 years, and now here I am doing a podcast in a hairnet. And so <laughs> you got to wonder if uh, I either was mad when I began or I was uh, caused to be mad by my many studies in the uh, book of Revelation. But at any rate, you, you can understand it. Bruce R. McConkie said that the language and imagery appeals to the maturing gospel scholar and uh, so that's going to be you before we're through with all this and uh, so prepare yourself and buckle up because uh, we've got a lot to go through having said that uh, it is true that uh, there are disagreements by scholars over the most fundamental meanings about the book of Revelation, and it goes all the way back to the uh, time of the Christian fathers in the second, third centuries AD. They're just disputes over what basic things mean, and uh, we're going to talk through our way through all those kinds of things. But essentially, there are three schools of interpretive thought. <clears throat> First, you have what is known as the preterist view. The, the view of these people are that everything has already been fulfilled in the book of Revelation in the past, and they attribute the uh, many images to Christianity prevailing over paganism back in John's time and shortly thereafter. The, the only problem with this view, of course, I won't say the only problem, but a problem, with this view is that if you understand anything about the great apostasy after Christ established his ancient church, you'll understand that really paganism prevailed over Christianity in many respects. And so the preterist view uh, just doesn't hold any water. The second uh, school of interpretive thought is a historical view. The historical view says that the book of Revelation covers everything from the time of the ancient church through the end of the world. There's lots of disagreements, however, 
in that particular uh, viewpoint as to what certain things mean and when they actually did happen. But uh, as members of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we, of course, understand that the uh, um, the book of Revelation covers that. It somewhat covers even more broadly because um, we have the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse that are were historical at the time of uh, John, and so. Uh, but we fall most closely into the category of those who take a historical view of the book of Revelation, and it doesn't go just to the end of the world, which is a synonym for the second coming. It goes through the end of the earth, which is after the millennium, after the celestialization of the earth. The third <clears throat> school of interpretive thought is the futurists. Uh, these individuals take the view that everything will be fulfilled immediately before the second coming and so it doesn't have much of a historical context to it at all and they look for everything to happen sometime in the future as the second coming continues to approach. Now within these three views or schools of interpretive thought you have all kinds of disputes and disagreements over which portions of the book of Revelation are allegorical or symbolic versus those that uh, are literal and you have basically everything in between. So in the midst of all of this uh, confusion and contention of meanings, Joseph Smith said, the book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. And you're sitting your here scratching your head wondering, I don't see that. <laughs> and, I, and I guess the easiest way to explain the prophet's comment is he never said that it was the easiest book that God ever caused to be written, but only the plainest. And I do have to say that uh, having spent a lot of time reading and studying and trying to understand it and uh, uh, praying that I could understand what the uh, images and symbols mean, I agree with the prophet. It really is one of the plainest books. And you, you start to put together the structure and look at the imagery, and uh, pretty soon it starts to become plain. But it, it doesn't happen overnight, and so it's going to take a little bit of devotion and dedication. you got to set aside the hamburger in your life, and uh, you will come to understand it. And if you're frustrated by the manner of the symbols and the apocalyptic images, just keep in mind the Lord is the one who just dictated the manner of the writing of the book of Revelation. And so I'm, I'm saying if you if you have any problems with that, the, you, you should check with management. Uh, they have an upstairs office, and uh, you can go and uh, put your suggestions in the suggestion box, I guess. At any rate, we've, we've already talked a little bit about how the revelation came to John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos, and uh, I think the symbols exist to hide the true meaning from those who uh, aren't willing to put in the time to understand it. And at the time that it was written, it was basically to hide the true meaning from his Roman captors so that uh, the book could be circulated in the Roman Empire without them basically destroying it or prohibiting it. Because if they understand truly what the book said about them as Romans, they never would have let it see the light of day. Uh, there are some who think that uh, the first Nephi 13, which talks about the great and abominable church and how it removed the plain and precious parts of the Bible. Um, according to some, they think, oh, well, 
the great and abominable churches removed the understandable parts of the book of Revelation, the plain and precious, leaving us with the things that are unplain <laughs> and unprecious. And so we're, this is what we're stuck with, but it, that really doesn't... Uh, hold much water. I think the book would remain largely intact the way John wrote it precisely because of the symbols and images that were not understood by those who would manipulate the doctrines of uh, Jesus Christ. And so it ultimately was the thing that allowed it to be preserved, canonized, and preserved to the uh, latter days because the symbols are they're just like fabled parables to the unenlightened romans and to people of our day as well however it was plain to the jewish christians who would have been conversant with these type of images <clears throat> specifically from the book of daniel and the book of ezekiel and today we have the benefit of having some historical hindsight that we can understand many of the uh, images associated with uh, john's and so with all of those things coupled with hopefully uh, the spiritual enlightenment of the latter days both uh, generally and in our individual lives we can truly understand the book now bruce r mcconkey gave seven guidelines to understanding the book of Revelation. I'm going to kind of walk through his steps for understanding uh, the book of Revelation. And, you know, I'm going to embellish and spend a little bit of time talking, giving some illustration of what he's saying and how it applies. Um, he begins with his first guideline saying that the Revelation is predominantly after New Testament times and describes events of the last days. Okay, again, we take a historical view, and that's essentially what uh, Elder McConkie is saying. And to, just to illustrate this point, we have the uh, the seals that are described in this book that had seven seals that represent the seven 1,000-year periods of the temporal history or existence of the earth. Now, how many of them are historical and how much time was devoted to the historical seals going all the way back to the time of Adam is of note. So in Revelation 6, uh, you get the first 11 verses that describe the first five seals that would take you from the time of Adam and the fall until 5,000 years later, which includes the meridian of time or the time in which Jesus lived. So 5,000 years of history in the book of Revelation are contained in just 11 verses. The next 23 verses from Revelation 6.12 through the end of chapter 7 comprise the sixth seal, which is the time and period in which we now live. It's known as the latter days. That's described in 23 verses. So uh, more than twice the number of verses describe this one seal in which we're living versus 11 verses for the first 5,000 years. But then after that, starting in chapter 8 of Revelation, we go to the seventh seal, and everything else after that <clears throat> is pretty much the uh, the seventh seal and beyond. Uh, well, I guess beyond. I don't know if that's the appropriate characterization because uh, the seven seals cover through the end of the earth. 
Um, but at any rate, so there's a lot of content that still lies in the future. And uh, there is some additional historical stuff that you find in those chapters, but it's largely to give context to what's happening during the seventh seal. And so uh, Elder McConkie had it exactly right. It's predominantly after New Testament times and uh, going into the second coming. Now, <clears throat> his second guideline is that if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand fundamentally the plan of salvation <clears throat> and God's dealings with mankind on the earth. Uh, I consider the revelation to be like a revelatory Rosetta Stone for the gospel. So while a lot of people kind of interpret uh, how to understand the book of Revelation as a process whereby if you understand the gospel, if you understand Latter-day Revelation and the, the writings of scholars uh, from the church and from without the church as well, then you can come to understand the uh, the book of Revelation. And that's very true, and I, I agree with that. But my experience has also been that I have learned a great deal about the gospel <clears throat> by understanding the uh, images in the book of Revelation. And that's why I refer to it as a revelatory Rosetta Stone. Now, the Rosetta Stone was a, uh, a granite stone discovered in 1799 in Rosetta, Egypt. Uh, the town today is known as Rashid. And on this stone, there was a decree written from Ptolemy V from 90, 196 BC. And his decree was written in three different languages, two forms of Egyptian, and then at the bottom, <clears throat> there was a writing in the Greek language. And up until that point in time, uh, archeologists and others uh, who study ancient languages couldn't figure out what any of the Egyptian hieroglyphics meant. But because they had the Rosetta Stone that included the exact or identical writing um, both in two forms of Egyptian and Greek, they were able to use that as an instrument to then begin what the images and hieroglyphs meant. And that's really what uh, made it possible to understand uh, what the ancient Egyptians were all about was the Rosetta Stone. And my experience <clears throat> is similar that you try and understand the images from the book of Revelation. And when you understand them, they tend to enlighten you on issues of uh, Latter-day Scripture and our basic doctrines in the church. And I'm going to give you an illustration of that as we go to Revelation chapter 20. Now, I've got to give you just a little bit of background before I tell you what I'm about to share with you from the book of Revelation. So in the church, we, we understand the doctrine of the resurrection. We understand such things as the, uh, we have a first resurrection that consists of the celestial and terrestrial kingdoms. We have a second resurrection that consists of the uh, telestial kingdom and sons of perdition, the really bad guys. <clears throat> we also understand that uh, the first resurrection precedes the second resurrection. Uh, the first resurrection is also the resurrection of the just, also called the resurrection of life. The resurrection, uh, the second resurrection is also known as the resurrection of the unjust um, and the resurrection of damnation. And 
There are various references to these in various places of Scripture, such as in uh, John chapter 5, talks about the two forms of resurrection, or the two stages, I guess is probably a better word. And then uh, also the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, that talks about how the resurrection uh, proceeds sequentially from highest to lowest. So these are all things that we understand, and we also, uh, there's no fundamental disagreement about the fact that the first resurrection for us uh, occurs again at the time of the second coming. So we know that when Christ comes, the graves will be open. The saints who have lived since the time of Christ will rise up to meet him and then descend with him as part of his resurrection. So the timing of that resurrection is is very, very clear to us. Also, the, the timing is very clear that if you're a bad guy, either in the telestial kingdom or in the uh, <clears throat> sons of perdition, you have to wait till the end of the resurrection after the, resur- or after the millennium uh, before you get to be resurrected. So these are all things that we fundamentally understand. The question is, when does the terrestrial resurrection begin? And uh, this is a, something that uh, not everyone agrees with. And in the church, uh, if I pose the question to you, when do you think that the terrestrial resurrection occurs? And I'm going to narrow it down for you just a little bit. You know that it's after the celestial and before the telestial, which means it's sometime in the period of the millennium. And the question is, is it toward the beginning of the millennium, or would it be toward the end of the millennium? And a lot of people, and I would say most people in the church, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I think the terrestrial resurrection occurs uh, near the beginning of the millennium, and uh, if you say that, you're in the majority of the view. However, that's not consistent with what John says in the uh, book of Revelation. So now let me read that to you, and it's found in chapter 20, verse 5. And it says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, you're thinking, well, he's probably referring to the telestial resurrection or the sons of perdition. Yeah, they're at the end, so that must be who he's talking about. But then we have to read the next sentence. He says, This is the first resurrection. So John right there says that he's talking about the fact that the you have the celestial resurrection that occurs at the time of Christ's second coming. And then he says the rest of the dead don't live uh, until the thousand years are finished. And he says this is the first resurrection. And so he basically said that the, the thousand year passage followed by another resurrection is still part of the first resurrection, which can only mean that's when terrestrial people are resurrected. And so we're going to spend more time going through this and looking at this, but I give this to you and discuss it as an illustration of how, for me, I came to better understand the doctrine of resurrection by reading the book of Revelation than I ever did by reading uh, 
things like the 88th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is kind of where some of this confusion comes in. So John gives this explanation, and uh, we, we get to spend more time to that, but that's 20 chapters away. We won't be studying it in any detail um, until we get to that point, but that's an illustration. So the third point that Elder McConkie gives, his guideline, is to use Latter-day Revelation that expands upon the topics in Revelation. And a good example of this is found in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 77, where Joseph Smith essentially had a nice Q&A session with the uh, Lord uh, that gives a key to understanding the book of Revelation. Again, this section doesn't explain every image everything that uh, the book of Revelation means, but it gives enough of a key to understanding certain things that allow you to then understand what's going on. It's kind of like in the movie National Treasure where uh, <clears throat> Ben Gates was uh, looking for the Charlotte and uh, it's an old ship wrecked up in the An up in the Arctic region and uh, he was he found the ship because the secret lies with Charlotte for the uh, discovery of this great uh, Templar treasure uh, that is the subject of the the movie and so they get up to the Charlotte they find the Charlotte and then they find this pipe that then becomes a key to understanding where the treasure is. Now, Ian was a little bit uh, miffed that uh, he thought they were going to find the treasure on the Charlotte, and all they found was this pipe or this key, but it was the key that led them to understand that there's a map on the back of the Declaration of Independence that they then eventually, well, I, I won't spoil it. If you haven't seen it, I won't tell you what happens. I don't, don't uh, tell the ending of the movie, but at any rate, that's the key. And that's DNC section 77 is a key to understanding the book of Revelation. It's not the treasure, it's just the key that's going to get you to the treasure. Now, the other thing that uh, Elder McConkie says in his fourth guideline to understanding the book of Revelation is to study the teachings and writings of the prophet Joseph Smith. And let me give you another illustration of how true that is, because if you go again to the prologue, in chapter 1, we're going to now take a look at verse 6, and this is discussing um, the Savior and his connection to um, the people who are resurrected to become kings and priests. And it says, and he, meaning Jesus Christ, hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so now you, here you have a verse that is basically saying that uh, he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, which a lot of people interpret when it says God, they're interpreting that to be Jesus Christ and the reference to his Father being God the Father. Um, but when Joseph Smith spoke at the funeral services of a brother by the name of King Follett in April 1844, he talked about this verse in the book of Revelation and confirmed that no, we're not talking here about Jesus and his Father, who is God the Father to us. He was talking about God our Father and his Father, thus confirming the doctrine of a plurality of gods and this general, generational aspect uh, that gods exist one generation upon generation. 
And so you take the King Follett sermon, which is a teaching of Joseph Smith, apply that back to the book of Revelation. We have a clear understanding of a fundamental doctrine within the church today that uh, many misunderstand and misinterpret. And so uh, uh, Elder McConkie's uh, guideline is, is very helpful. So then we come to the fifth guideline, which is to use the Joseph Smith translation to aid in your understanding of the book of Revelation. And this, this is also uh, something that uh, is very helpful. And you'll find that uh, in the book of Revelation, the Joseph Smith translation makes more changes and edits to that chapter than in any other chapter in the book of Revelation. I mean, Joseph was rearranging verses and, uh, and he went through quite a bit. Uh, and these changes uh, are very, very helpful. Frankly, the, the 12th chapter in the book of Revelation is probably one of the least understood chapters in the book of Revelation. And through the significant changes made by the Joseph Smith translation, it can be much more easily understood and is uh, much more clear. The sixth guideline given by Elder McConkie is that we are to reserve judgment on things for which there is no interpretation given. And, uh, and I, I appreciate what Elder McConkie is saying here, but in my study of the book of Revelation, and as I was going through it, I kind of took the uh, position that there is nothing in the book of Revelation that can't be understood. In other words, there there are certain things certainly which uh, the Lord hasn't given us a clear interpretation, but I think everything can be understood. It goes back to what we read from the prologue and epilogue that uh, this is a book that is unsealed. We are supposed to understand it. We're supposed to read it. We're supposed to hearken to it. Um, and then we get the blessings. And so that's not consistent with this idea that there are things that we can't understand. So I take the position that everything can be understood and that we live in the day when the book of Revelation will be made more plain because we have the tools at our disposal to be able to understand them. I also uh, think about the, uh, the book of Acts where uh, Peter was speaking on the day of Pentecost and he made a, an interesting prophecy about the, uh, the last days and it's actually he was uh, prophesying about things that had been said by the prophet Joel and he says this <clears throat> verse 17 and 18 and again this is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost he said and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Now that last verse is obviously a pretty clear reference to uh, the writings of Joel uh, that has almost the identical language. But what, what is interesting to me about this verse is the fact of the Lord talking about how in the last days, the days in which we live, he was going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. So it's not like we have to rely solely on the prophet to tell us what these scriptures mean in the book of Revelation, uh, whether that be the prophet Joseph or the, the modern prophets that live today. Uh, the Lord's spirit has been poured out upon all flesh. And when I 
Think of these words, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams, uh, and the pouring out of the spirit on the handmaidens of the Lord. I think about all the podcasters, you know, and how they, through the spirit and inspiration, excuse me, my voice has a little bit of a frog this morning, and uh we have these people who who prophesy and and through the power of the spirit uh tell us about the truths of scripture and and i see there's being some fulfillment here in these things and uh i guess i'm could be added among the list i don't know i hope that i have the spirit um but uh, my experience has been as i studied the book of revelation uh, i came to understand things and images that uh, are consistent with this idea of that the Lord's Spirit has been poured out upon all men. <clears throat> I want to cite one other thing from uh, President Nelson. He said that this in the October General Conference in 2022. He said, uh, In coming days, we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen. And that's consistent with what Peter was telling us when he was quoting Joel, essentially. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, um, and we're going to see those kinds of things as the Savior comes in power. But then after uh, President Nelson made that comment, he, he added this sentence. He said, between now and the time he returns. So he, he went from <clears throat> talking about the second coming to the time between now and then what's going to happen. So this is what he says, between now and the time he returns, with power and great glory, he will bestow countless privileges, blessings, and miracles upon the faithful. These miracles upon the faithful, uh, they can take many forms, but among them, I believe it will be a greater understanding of the scriptures, this outpouring of the spirit that was described by uh, the apostle Peter, Uh, and the blessings that will come. Remember, the the book of Revelation tells us that in order to get the blessings, you have to read, understand, and hearken to the writings, and then the blessings will come. And so I think that uh, these things are all spiritually connected. And so I think that in the book of Revelation, understanding the difficult passages are possible through the mechanism described in the Doctrine and Covenants section 9 that talks about how to receive revelation. It tells us that we have to study it out in our mind and then we have to ask if it's right. And if it be right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. That's the, that's the way in which we can understand the book of Revelation. Even those things that don't seem to have uh, any clear interpretation, I think this is the day when those those things are going to be understood so that we can make sure that we're prepared for the second coming. I mean, think of it this way. We know that after the second coming, the Lord is going to reveal everything. The 101st section of the Doctrine and Covenants tells us we're going to know everything about the creation, the earth, how it was created, everything about the plan of salvation, it's all going to be known. And I sit here and say, well, why would the Lord possibly wait to reveal all that information to us after his second coming when it doesn't really do us any good? We need it now. 
Uh, we need it to prepare for the second coming and to understand the signs of the times and the things that are coming. And so I don't think he's going to wait until after the second coming for us to understand uh, what all of these signs and symbols mean, and they can be understood. Now, right now, it feels like it's a little bit of putting together a puzzle. But think about your experience as you're putting together puzzles. And uh, I'm sure we do it <laughs> all the same way, right? You always start with the edge pieces uh, and you find them out so you, you uncover them and make sure all the pieces are right side up and uh, you look at the colors and everything but the first thing you look for are those edge pieces and uh, you take what is essentially this matter unorganized and you now get those edge pieces, put them together and you have a defined universe and you begin from there and then you start organizing the colors that give you some context you put all those pieces together and you you work on them and eventually they get connected and pretty soon you've got the uh, puzzle that's been put together um, and uh, it's it's a truism that when you put together a puzzle there's never any leftover pieces and the other thing that uh, has to happen is you can't have any missing pieces right <laughs> there's nothing more frustrating than putting together a puzzle spending all these hours on this puzzle putting it together and all of a sudden oh we're missing some pieces right I mean there's just there's no joy uh, that does not uh, represent a fullness of joy when you're missing a puzzle piece and that's the way it is with the book of Revelation how it was for me I just could not be completely satisfied if there were something that I felt like oh this is just a missing piece that I can never understand I don't think the Lord has done that to us so yes you got to reserve judgment if you, there's something that the Lord hasn't given us a specific interpretation of but in my experience I don't think that's the case with the book of Revelation. I think all of the symbols can be understood and it's only by having an understanding of all of the imagery and symbolism that you have a complete understanding and receive all the blessings from it. Now the seventh guideline given by Elder McConkie is you have to seek the Spirit. In other words, you need to have the same spirit of understanding that is used in giving the revelation. and. Uh, if you do so, then you understand the revelation by having the same spirit. Elder McConkie was in Holland when I was there as a young missionary in uh, probably early 1980, and he came for a mission president seminar, um, which was hosted by my mission. We had probably 14 mission presidents from uh, Western Europe who attended this conference, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be involved in some of the planning of that and, and making sure everything was uh, ready and so I had the luxury of uh, <clears throat> being there one evening when the mission presidents had dinner together and then Elder McConkie was going to address them and he kind of had some remarks I think that he had anticipated giving and he kind of mentioned that I'm going to set those aside because I want to talk about something else and that something else that he talked about was the principle of perfect worship and he described perfect worship as occurring when a person speaks by the power of the Spirit, uh, which then conveys it to the ears of the hearer who also understand the words that are spoken by the same Spirit. And so when you have the speaker and the hearer both understanding the same communication through the same spiritual medium, then you have perfect worship. And that's the idea behind the book of Revelation. If you have the same spirit 
um, that was the source of inspiration for what John wrote, then you can have a, a form of perfect worship by coming to understand everything that is said in the book of Revelation. And we keep in mind, of course, that uh, the scriptures tell us that they are not subject to private interpretation. And probably there are going to be those who might accuse me of looking at some of these images and saying, this is what this image means, saying, well, that's his private interpretation. And that would be true unless um, it was a understanding or interpretation that is inspired by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, fortunately for you, you get to decide for yourselves whether I'm speaking by the power of the Holy Ghost or not, and as you understand it. So keep that in mind. I'm going to talk about images and their meanings and things like that, but the bottom line is you have the ability to know for yourself what is truth through the same power of the Holy Ghost. And as you read the book of Revelation, um, I'm confident that you can understand uh, the truths that are contained there. And you just can't be a casual consumer, as I said at the outset. And you have to uh, approach the revelation with the faith and study and diligence like you're putting together a puzzle. Uh, the prophet Nephi talks about feasting on the words of Christ, and uh, you've heard it said, you, you can't nibble. And that certainly is true in the book of Revelation. Now, one of the things that do make it difficult for us to understand the book of Revelation, and this is what Nephi also talked about among his people, when he said he wrote in plainness because his people didn't understand the manner of the prophesying among the Jews from the Old Testament. I'm going to give you an illustration of that. If we go to uh, chapter uh, 2, <clears throat> verses 17 in the book of Revelation, this is a uh, one of the letters that are written to um, the seven churches. This one happened to be a verse that uh, comes up as uh, John was writing to the saints in Pergamos. And he makes this promise to them. He's saying, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, that's the principle I've just talked about. You've got to have the spirit of understanding. And he says, If you do that, then to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and it will be, etc., etc. So we have this concept uh, that is introduced by John of the hidden manna. <clears throat> now, if you don't know what manna is, you have no understanding about what John is even talking about. And most people, fortunately, and I'm sure the Jews did too, uh, and, and the, the Jewish people among the Nephites in, on the American continent, they, they understand the concept of manna, uh, which is a word that means, what is it? <laughs> and so essentially <clears throat> what happens is one morning they walk out and they see all this white stuff on the ground, which we'd probably think, oh, it snowed or there's frost on the ground. Um, they weren't used to that in the desert. And they walk out and the first thing they say is, what is it? And that's what manna is. That's what the word means is, what is it? And that's how it came to have that name. It uh, reminds me of our nomenclature used out at my grandfather's ranch of how we would name horses and trucks and other things like that. <laughs> if you had a black horse, uh, it would be Blackie. If you had a mare who gave birth to uh, a colt, she'd be the mare. Uh, we had brownies and we, my mouse, my horse uh, was kind of a, a mouse colored horse. So it was called mouse. And there was another horse that my grandfather called Whitey 
guess what color that horse was, uh, although the rest of us called him Tony. And then the same, same way of naming our trucks. If you had the, uh, the power wagon, which was a model of a particular truck, that's the name of the truck, was the power wagon. There was a truck called Blackie, and it was a black truck. Uh, there was another truck called Old Ben, uh, and that came, name came to be because a guy drove it for years whose name was Ben, and so it became, uh, you go take old Ben and do this. But uh, uh, So we have the same nomenclature, so I appreciate the Israelites. Maybe it just means that we're of Israelite blood because we have the same method of naming things. But uh, But the issue is with the manna that we're talking about here in verse 17 of chapter 2 is, uh, what's this business about the hidden manna? Because it's not just manna, uh, it's hidden manna. And so you have to understand this story about the fact that the manna, there was a, a, a vase of manna that was placed into the Ark of the Covenant. So I know you've been watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones when they finally open up the Ark of the Covenant. There's only sand in the bottom of it, and that's not correct because there was actually, should have been the Ten Commandments, and then Aaron's rod that blossomed like an almond, and then you would have this pot of manna uh, that was preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. That's the hidden manna. Is that that's the imagery that is being called upon? If you don't understand that Old Testament imagery, then you don't get the real message, the the real message that is being given. Now you have to also understand that manna had a very short uh, shelf life. And so if you tried to collect more manna than what you could eat on a given day, it would rot in one day, unless it was the Sabbath and then it was preserved for two days. So it had a short, short shelf life, um, except for that pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant, which never deteriorated, it never rotted, it was preserved. You have to take that imagery and you then couple it with the uh, teachings of the Savior in the sixth chapter of John where he gave the bread of life sermon. And he talks about the fact that he essentially is the bread of life. And as he was giving this discussion, he said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead. <laughs> okay, And he says, but... I'm the bread of life, I'm living manna that you can eat and you will never die. You take all of these images together and you come to realize that Jesus is the hidden manna and, and he's the preserver of life. He's the bread of life and you eat his bread that has a shelf life that will last forever unlike the manna of the old days and it's hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, and it's hidden in the book of Revelation. You will find him in the book of Revelation. There will be an unveiling, and when you have that manna that is hidden and it becomes unveiled to you or revealed, it's like opening the Ark of the Covenant um, and receiving his spirit and the blessing. So it's not like a, the ending in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, this is a really good thing, is to have this hidden manna uh, revealed to you and your ability to partake of it. It's like partaking of the sacrament, which represents the uh, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You partake of these things. You That's the hidden manna. Um, and you have to understand these images. And now you start to get the picture. Oh, this is the manner of the prophesying of the Jews, which a lot of people don't understand. So we'll, we'll spend some time talking about the historical roots of some of these uh, images, and uh, then it will become clear. Now, 
to put this all into a little bit of a, uh, a modern context, and what difference does it make uh, if I understand? You have to understand that the book of Revelation gives many signs of the times and warnings. And I'm going to talk about this next week in more detail as we talk about the fundamental structure of the book of Revelation. But let me just give you an illustration. If you uh, look in uh, Revelation <clears throat> chapter uh, 16, verse 15, Jesus tells us, I come as a thief. This is not a saying that is unfamiliar to us. Uh, we all understand that, hey, if you're not prepared, uh, the second coming is going to hit you like uh, a thief coming in the night, and you're unprepared to uh, to deal with that. And so in Revelation 16, 15, uh, we have that statement, behold, I come as a thief. And then Jesus adds, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, the image of garments and keeping your garments is an admonition, of course, to uh, keep your temple covenants, uh, which are represented by an appropriate wearing of the temple garments. Um, and then he adds this, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This, is, I think, is a good illustration. Again, a little bit of the writing of the manner of the Jews and also additional information about the consequences of not being prepared. So you have the idea that Jesus will come as a thief uh, if you're not prepared. Here we're having language added. Oh, and by the way, if you're not prepared, it's not like they just steal everything in your house. No, you're going to walk naked and people are going to see your shame. And you sit there and scratch your head. Well, what, what does that mean? <clears throat> this also is an illusion to the Levite priests who worked in the ancient temple and tabernacle before that, who had the job responsibility to keep watch over the temple at night. And so if a Levite priest fell asleep on his, at his post, um, the consequences of that would, he would be stripped of his temple robes, um, he would be beaten, and then he would be forced to walk naked where people could see his shame. And so the image that the Lord is trying to impress upon you to be prepared for his second coming is, it's not just that this thief enters your house and violates your private space and your personal space uh, and maybe steals some of your belongings. You're going to be beaten, your clothes will be stripped from you, and you'll be kicked out of your house and everybody's going to say, oh, they weren't prepared. <laughs> they fell asleep at the post. And so um, <clears throat> this is an illustration of how the book of Revelation can give you additional details. And I have to say <clears throat> that in my study of the book of Revelation, I find it to be contain the most complete and definitive timeline of coming events in our day. And so we have lots of signs of the times and some of them can be kind of confusing for various reasons. But John, the book of Revelation, has this definitive timeline that is given. And you can understand it uh, once we go through it. We'll, we'll, we'll study it some more next week when we talk about the uh, structure of the uh, book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is essentially an unsealed book for our time. Now, Joseph Smith did say, <clears throat> whenever God gives a vision of an image or beast or figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give a revelation or interpretation of the meaning thereof. Otherwise, we are not responsible or accountable for our belief in it. And so this 
again, kind of gives everybody a little bit of an out. If you don't uh, completely understand the revelation, uh, because the interpretations have not been given, then yeah, you, you aren't going to be held accountable for it. But as I said before, um, these interpretations are coming to light. We have the historical, the benefit of historical hindsight where we can understand how many of the things that were once prophetic and in the future are now in our past and they clearly show how things um, are to be interpreted on a going forward basis. And again, I just simply reiterate, I don't think the Lord is going to wait until after the second coming to reveal these things to us because we really need to know them now. And he's given us the keys to understanding them. And uh, many of the signs have uh, already been fulfilled, and many more are in the process of being fulfilled. And so as we continue on with our discussion next week, we're going to be talking about the uh, specific organization and structure of the book of Revelation, which will continue to be an unfolding of the book of Revelation and makes what makes it plain. Two weeks from now, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the numerology and symbolism in the book of Revelation. And as we continue to go through this excursion into podcast excellence, uh, I hope that you will continue to uh, understand these things and that by understanding it will also motivate you to understand them and to spend the time you need to really get to know what John's meaning is and to have the power of the Spirit blessing your life to understand these things. And as you do that, um, you know, when life throws hamburger at you, uh, one pound every second, uh, you can somehow, in the midst of that uh, struggle, uh, find the time to study these things and understand them completely. And it's my uh, hope and prayer that you will. And uh, I look forward to being with you next week.